Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Find Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are executive art director Mike Bekovich, special projects editor Asa Christiana, yo, yo. San Diego furniture maker and fine woodworking contributor Craig Thibodeau, and my handkerchief. That's right, I'm suffering from a terrible amount of seasonal allergies, so if you hear me doing a lot of this, now you know why. Uh, as always, folks, if you like this podcast and you dig woodworking, be sure to spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a nice five-star rating. And uh, remember, you can also catch us at iHeartRadio. Uh, so uh, before we get started, uh, we had some, you know, got some traction from the video version uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, so we're going to keep up with this experiment. Um, you know, we got several thousand views and... Um, these faces are very camera friendly, as mm. people know. So, and by camera friendly, he means not <laughs> <laughs> a face made for radio. Really, the best thing about the video component is just when we do all-time favorite tool and and stuff like that. We can actually show people what we're talking about. But uh, remember, guys, this is still primarily an audio-only podcast, which so is good because describe. I forgot to bring anything to actually show as a. So Michael will be pantomiming. Yes, a lot of this going Sorry. on, um, and. Uh, Again, before we get started, we got a word from our sponsor, the good folks at Minwax. For more than 100 years, Minwax has been the leading brand of high-quality wood finishing and wood care products. From wood stains to clear protective finishes, plus solutions for wood preparation, maintenance, cleaning, and repair, Minwax products are requested by the do-it-yourselfer consumer, seasoned woodworkers, and professional contractors. You can find Minwax online at minwax.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. That's right, Pinterest. I'm actually a fan of the Minwax product. You know what my favorite Minwax product is? And I don't say this to shamelessly plug for our sponsor. What's that? The antique oil. That was, a reason. that was a pivotal finish in my finishing career. I first started using Minwax mm-hmm. antique oil. Um, and I used it for a long time. It's really good. And also their wipe-on poly. If yep. I want a, a more clear finish than water, water locks that I usually use, Wipe on poly is good. Yeah, and for a low kind of in the wood finish, the antique oil that you guys were talking about is available everywhere. I think that's why so many of us used it so much yep. throughout our career. Is uh, it's just that you can get it at almost every hardware store. It also has a very distinctive aroma, mm-hmm. and it, it reminds me of the the woodworking program at RIT when I was in college because so many of the kids in the woodworking program used antique oil. Yeah, and every, every time I smell that, it's, I'm propelled back to college. Mm-hmm. Um, but enough of that. Everybody's going to be like, you shameless plug artists. Um, anyhow, so let's dive into some questions. The first one comes from Kyle, who hmm. writes, I have a question regarding, oh, how apropos. Hmm. I have a question regarding the wiping on of finishes. I understand the general idea, but could you offer an explanation or tips on finishing more complex pieces? For example, a chair or some interior space. How about two-sided pieces like a door? Do you apply finish to the entire piece or in stages? How would you apply finish to a chair that has a lot of parts that come together? Um, so we Kyle wins the award for 75 questions in one question. There you go. <laughs> um, so, gentlemen, I will let me start because I, uh, I recently made a leap to trying to pre-finish as many furniture components as possible, and it's been wonderful. Uh, Specifically, I, I've been making these little caddies. They're, it's basically a dovetailed box with a center divider and a handle in it. And um, because the dovetails are proud... They stick out. They stick out. I don't have to do any trimming after glue-up, um, you know, planing after glue-up. So I've found that I can just bang out 
the finish on everything and then glue it up and any minute... Are you wiping on finish? I'm doing a wipe on finish. Hmm. And then when and I glue it... keeping it off the glue surfaces? Well, that's the thing with dovetails. The glue surfaces, they... You're, I'm finishing the outside faces, right? right? So the, the business you know, end of the, of the joint, mm-hmm. you would never white finish there anyhow. That's right? all inside those it's little notches. It's all inside the notches, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so then when I glue everything up, any minute squeeze out, it's so much easier to just wipe it right off. Boom, it comes off. I don't have to worry about marring the wood and you know, finish adhesion. What happens afterwards. if... I've done some of this too, and I know Mike has too. What happens if you get little dings and dents and stuff. Do you save a little bit of sanding and wiping for the very end after the whole well, thing's assembled and you've taken the glue squeeze out off and I all do that? always do my last coat. I do one last coat after it's been mm-hmm. fully assembled, but I'm also very careful. So go to... around after assembly, troubleshoot the piece, look for leftover glue, stuff like that. But I can't, well, here's the thing. You can't really do anything with dings after the fact because at that point you can't steam anything out. So I, I'm just... If I were Matt, if I were snarky Matt, I'd just say I'm just careful not to get road rash. (laughs) (laughs) Shop rash. Yeah, I'll do that. I mean, sometimes I'll go all the way to a final finish on a piece with some nooks and crannies. You know, that that old adage, what's the easiest way to sand into the corner of a drawer? It's like we'll sand it before it becomes a corner. So the same thing with finishing. Um, And a lot of my stuff, Ed, you know, a lot of my joints end up proud, sticking out. So I'll pre-finish as often as I can. And typically what I'll do, even if it's just a wash coat of shellac, really dilute coat of shellac, wipe it on everything, and then sand it down. By the time you sand it down, it feels unfinished. It looks like an unfinished board. But the really important difference, um, first of all, if the glue gets on it, it's not going to discolor the wood or prevent the finish from... That's nice. So it's like a glue resist. It's a glue resist, but more... I think, well, just as importantly, because that is really important, is that what you're doing with that wash coat is you're raising the, gla- the grain and you're locking it in place. So now when you sand it again, you have a really smooth, stable substrate to begin building a finish on top of. So once you do have it together and start wiping on your finish, you're not dealing with all the little bumps and nibs of, and raised grain right. that you normally get after your first Because the finish. most, all of you out there in uh, woodworking world should realize that, I'm just talking right to the camera now, that you should be sanding between your coats because each, <clears throat> in, in most coats of finish, are gonna, little dust nibs are going to settle out of the air. The very first coat of finish, like Mike's talking about, really raises the grain. Right. And, uh, and, so, um, and what the finish does is it hardens and locks all those fibers upright, which is a perfect position for you to swoop in and level them down with sandpaper, right? And so you're saying that you'll at least pre-finish that first coat and get the bulk of the sanding done. Yeah, wherever... Before assembly. You're not going to have to finish your smooth parts afterwards. Like if you're flushing dovetails, forget it. Yeah, you're going to take everything down to bare wood anyway. Um, if you're fitting a frame and panel door, if you're planing that door frame flat, you know I'll finish. I'll pre-finish the panel with at least one coat before it goes yeah. into Otherwise, the frame. Otherwise, expansion and contraction is going to reveal the unfinished yeah. portion. Yeah, you know, those skinny lines yeah. with no finish on that. If you're not careful, it's so, not awesome. Um, yeah, I've tried. I haven't done. Uh, pre-finishing as much as you guys, though I always do the panel. I put a coat on the panel. But I love that idea, Mike, about getting just at least one coat on there and raising the grain, sanding all those parts, knock down the grain. So the that's the bulk of the sanding between coats. The right. later on stuff is just super fine paper and 
it's easy to get into the corners. Four odd steel wall. Right. And what, right. what goes without saying, which is critically important, is that if you're finishing prior to glue up, that means you're surface prepping early on Ooh, yes. in your battle as well. And I find that the longer I, I would work, the more my entire finishing routine has migrated into the building process. So now it isn't like build it, finish it. By the time you're done building and it's assembled, your finishing is kind of you know 90% done. It's true. I was going to mention that earlier that I, though I haven't pre-finished a lot, I definitely surface prep the heck out of all my parts while they're flat pieces. Right. It's next to impossible. Don't put your furniture together and have a bunch of planar marks and ridges and scallops on there and then hope to get that all out after assembly. You want to get that stuff all out of there before you put those pieces and parts together. Right. Here's a question. Um, because I don't profess to be any sort of finishing expert. And it got me thinking. I, I watch a lot of these home remodeling type shows, this yeah. old housey type stuff. I love that stuff. And uh, there's one in particular that I've seen several episodes of where the guy, he's flipping houses, and he, a lot of what he does is refinishing, uh, you know, pulling up carpet and refinishing the original wood floors underneath. And he goes to pains to say that, well, before I, he's using, um, he's actually using, Minwax stain. Um, so you've got an oil-based stain, right? Every time he finishes a floor, before he finishes, he wets the whole thing down with water. Yeah. The idea being that the stain supposedly absorbs more evenly. Oh. Now that sounded like, as the car talk guys would say, bogus. Is it right before he puts on the stain, yes. he wets it? Yes. And he leaves it wet while he puts the stain yes. on? Yes. Yeah, and it's a water-based stain. It's just... No, isn't that, isn't, aren't they oil-based? Oh, maybe. It sounds like it's some version of conditioning the wood, which there's a lot of products made that put liquid down. Yeah. Um, and like a de-wax sort of, shellac kind of. Yeah, and it's a way to even out the penetration of whatever you're putting down because, you know, there's a lot of ways to do that. You can put shellac on, let it dry, give it a light sanding. The water thing, though, that yeah. seemed odd to Water me. under oil is weird. I'm not sure what he was doing after the fact. I don't know. I, I have definitely, you can, you know, spritz the surface with water before a water-based dye, and you're mm -hmm. pre-saturating the fibers, and you yeah. minimize the amount of absorption from the dye. Water under oil? I mean, there is moisture content in wood to begin True. with. I mean, it's not wet. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm putting that in my potentially you, bogus file. No, try it out. Yeah, give it a whirl on all the floors in your house. I'll do it. Yeah, yeah, I'll try that. But not on a test piece. Try oh, not yeah. on the real thing. <laughs> Why that test pieces yeah. are for wimps. Let's go on the record yeah. right now. It's and a waste say, of time. Don't test any of your finishes on a test piece. It seems like it makes tons of sense, but don't do that. You just dive right in. It feels so awesome to just risk. Let me just pull you down. Hundreds of ledge, hours of, of work <laughs> and hundreds of dollars worth of lumber. Because you sound very convincing. All right. Sorry. In this, this bogus. Being jokey. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> So that's Kyle. So let's, let's move on to Steve, who writes, I've noticed that all of the examples on how to sharpen, set up, and use any hand plane, the examples always use the best piece of straight-grained wood that can be found. That's because we don't want to look like idiots that's when right. we're on camera. <laughs> Never have I seen anyone deal with a piece of wood where the grain runs every which way, and that's usually the kind of wood I end up with. And when I try my skills with it, I come away frustrated because of all the tear-out I run into. I do persevere, but my results are not the showroom mirror finish so often seen on internet demos. Please show me, slash us, how you fine woodworkers handle a highly figured, crazily grained piece of wood to get that showroom surface without any serious tear out. This, <laughs> one, is, this one is all Mike. Yes, it is. Well, I don't know. I don't know the, the examples you've seen. Um, 
certainly a straight grain wood, especially like a piece of pine, you take up a big old shaving, you measure it, you know, comes close to a 32nd of an inch thick, but it's, you know, leaves a mere finish. Um, actually, here's the more typical straw man uh, for sharpening articles is you pull out a piece of really highly figured tiger maple, which you think is like, whoa, look at that figure and look at that mere surface you get. You must be really, really sharp. Eh. Maple, yeah, it is incredibly figured and the grain is going up and down. That's what that curl is. But it's a very adhesive wood. The, the, it holds together. The fibers like to hold together. Uh -huh. So you can actually plane highly figured maple <laughs> with a sharp blade, you know, fairly easily without tear out. So that's usually the straw man will – I'll pull out a nice piece of figured maple if we have a hand plane article to yeah. show. Um, so the idea that you have to plane with the grain in order to avoid tear out, you can't do it a lot of times. You are going against the grain, especially on figured wood. Um, so what's the workaround? Got to get sharp. Got to get sharp. I think 99% of it is being sharp, sharp, sharp. Um, so let me get this straight. You've got to be sharp. Yes. Yeah, don't be a duller dad. <laughs> Here's the thing. Okay, so a standard uh, plane is bedded at 45 degrees. Um after sharp. So we got sharp. Sharp we got locked sharp. In. And your standard plane is better at 45. And it is true if you go steeper than 45, you're, you have less lifting of the fibers as yeah. you plane and almost getting towards more compression of the fibers. So you're going to get less tear out. Um, a lot of times the, the first sort of choice in rectifying your tear out issues is to go at a steeper angle. I said, no, get, get really, really sharp first because that's going to handle almost everything. You can go to... And tune up your plane, too. Yeah, you can go to a, a hand plane after that with a steeper frog, say 50, mm -hmm. 55 degrees, and then put a back bevel on your blade so you're planing at 55, 60 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, or you can just get a card scraper. Yeah. Learn how to uh, sharpen and tune your card scraper because that's actually cutting beyond 90 degrees. So you're yeah. actually compressing the fibers, which is why you get a slightly rougher finish than a hand plane, but zero tear still, But it's still yeah. a passable finish. Well, I would definitely follow up with sandpaper. Yeah. But yeah, you're getting rid of milling machine marks and tear out pretty effectively with the scraper. You got to be careful, as you mentioned the other day, Asa, that if you really flex it and dig in in areas, you can kind of dish it out. Yeah, try to remove, even though the, the danger with a card scraper is you want to flex it a little bit, that sure. you need to flex it. And you'll just keep wailing away in that one area until you make a hollow. And you may not even know it. And later on, you put finish on so there. You make that diameter. Yes. Yeah. Typically. So how do you avoid that, Mike? Like, do you have to take down the whole, in, this whole entire table to get rid of that hollow? Like, how do you get around it when you're card scraping? Well, I mean, just about any defect in a piece of wood, tear out, burn marks, it's going to be a recess. It's going to be hollow. And we see a defect like a piece of tear out, and we want to work that area of tear out until it's gone. And if you do that, that's when you get your hollow. So the idea is that the notion is always bringing down surrounding areas down to the lowest level of the defect. A hand plane is really good because a hand plane is automatically going to find the high spots and take it down to the low. Card scraper, you can cheat it. So you still want to keep that in mind, but you basically want to work broader surfaces like you were sort of, you know, Kind of feather it that. out. Kind right. of feather it out from where you're digging, where you're taking it down 
let's say you're taking down 20,000. Yeah, so you're probably talking an eight or 10 inch radius around a piece of tear out that you're working and feathering down to that surface there. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, get your hand plane really, really sharp. Learn how to use a scraper. Then if you want to invest the money in another hand plane or figure out a way to plane at a steeper angle for the rare occasions, go for it. But sharp hand plane, sharp scraper is going to handle and the card everything for you. basically free. Pretty close. Yeah. yeah. 10 bucks. Right. Figure out. But, you know, you have to invest some time in figuring out how to tune up a hand plane. We've been through this a umpteenth million times. There's also a good video on how to <clears throat> how to sharpen a card scraper on our site, too. Yeah, and then you have to figure out how to burnish a hook in a card scraper. It's a completely different process than creating a sharp edge, right. though there are some related yep. steps, uh, you know, to a hand plane. So you get the sharpening down, and that's most of the way down yep. the road. So uh, we have a sort of a special guest this week. It's San Diego furniture maker Craig Thibodeau, who Tom McKenna was recently out visiting. And uh, Tom was nice enough to bring our podcasting gear. And uh, I should mention that you're going to hear this sound every once in a while during the course of the interview. I know what that sound is, having visited him many times. And that sound is? <laughs> the train. The, no, the aircraft. <laughs> Aircraft. He's got aircraft going over his, his place. His shop used to have a train going by it. Well, this was aircraft, I was told by oh, Tom. Oh, you know what? He moved his shop. That's right. Did he? Yes. Well, he's yes, got, he, he moved from uh, trains to planes, <laughs> and automobiles are sure to well, follow. if you are looking for a wood, cheap wood, wood shop space in San Diego, you're going to be underneath a plane or next to a train. Yeah, probably. Now, what is interesting about Craig, and I won't go into this too much because we're about to run the audio um craig is very uh he's very matter of fact and black and white when it comes to talking about woodworking and how you know this is my job like yes. you know one of the questions you'll, you'll hear one of the questions is you know well, what kind of woodworking do you do on the off hours and the answer is going to surprise you um but he's very very matter of fact about this is a career and this i'm very serious about it and don't give me any that nonsense about Fancy Japanese chisels, Mike Pekovich. Uh, so the other, the other we'll thing, the other thing <laughs> that uh, that jumps out, uh, and you know, Craig loves beautiful tools. Don't uh, don't get me wrong, but um, the other thing that uh, jumps out about me, uh, uh, for me about him, is that it's a bit of a West Coast thing, and he tends to work with a lot of veneer, mm -hmm. and I think that's for two reasons on the West Coast. Number one, um, clients are looking for; they're more comfortable with more of a modern look. And veneer can kind of give you a really sleek, modern look. And also veneer lets you play with patterns and do all sorts of things that are a little bit, they just look non-traditional. Yeah. You know, you can play with veneer in ways that you can't with solid wood. On top of that, solid wood is really expensive out there because it's... It's got to come from somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. There's Claro Walnut, I guess, out there. And there are some woods, but those are even pricey. Even that's probably coming from Oregon or... Up north somewhere. Gotcha. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Mike Mike knows he's from he's a SoCal dude. So um, they so veneer makes a ton of sense for that reason. So then you're putting it on MDF or plywood or other less expensive substrates, and but it lets you create furniture um, and it lets you approach joinery in a completely different way. That's another thing he'll talk about is his Don't love for the, his love for certain non-traditional joinery tools. Uh, well, and yeah, so with, all, with no further ado. With no further ado, uh, this is our very own Tom McKenna with San Diego furniture maker, Craig Thibodeau. 
Hello, Woodworking World. This is Tom McKenna. I'm the editor of Fine Woodworking, and I'm here in sunny San Diego, hanging with Craig Dibodeau, a well-known furniture maker in San Diego and a frequent contributor to Fine Woodworking. Welcome, Craig. Thanks for having me in your shop. Happy to have you, Tom. Well, um, we'll get right down to business. I know there's a, a beautiful day outside, and it's Sunday, and it'll be nice to get out and breathe some San Diego air. So let me, uh, let, let's start talking about wood. Okay. Um, the first question I, and, and it's something I, I ask guys a lot when I first meet them is, is, you know, how did you get into woodworking and, and how long have you been doing it? I started woodworking quite a while ago. We always had a shop at my parents' house that my dad likes to do woodworking. He's always done it as a hobby. And I did that for a long, long time. But, um, I've been doing it professionally, probably building furniture for about 15 years. Um, I did engineering, mechanical engineering before that, and it was still a hobby during that time. And as I built up more and more clients from a hobby perspective, it sort of turned into a full-time job. At what point did you feel confident enough that you could make that that jump? I mean, that's a big jump going from having a secure job to yeah, branching when, out on your own. When I was doing too many nights and weekends building commission pieces it was time to make it more of a full-time job yeah yeah so what in general i know you you do some amazing work with veneers and um just uh, how would you describe your your furniture i mean what is your uh design theme i mean what's your influences um i would say if i had to describe the style most of my furniture is kind of an asian arts and crafts blend a little bit of curvature, a lot of interesting veneers and decorative wood, um, quite a bit of Art Deco work. I've been influenced by Krenov and by Ruhlman for a long, long time. And the Art Deco comes from Ruhlman and the attention to detail kind of comes from the Krenov side. Um, but most of my work is kind of a, a modernized arts and crafts um, with the addition of the marquetry and some parquetry and the floral work. Um, that is just added to the arts and crafts part of it. Where do you get your design? Um, you know, your, your parquetry work is amazing. And, you know, it seems very mathematical in, in my view, you know, and how you arrange your patterns and things. Where do you get your ideas from? And, and how do you go about developing your, your marquetry and parquetry patterns? Oh, a lot of it is client-based. Almost all of the marquetry and, and parquetry work that I've done has been commission pieces for clients where the client has an idea. I need a, a sideboard of some kind for my entryway, and I like gardenia flowers or I like dogwood flowers. And most of the marquetry pattern, it's just sort of random sketching, and it's sketching and resketching until I find something that I like, uh, where the branches flow and where the flowers go and that sort of thing. And then occasionally we'll add you know, butterflies and dragonflies as inlay. And that, again, it's sort of just randomly placed until they look right. Occasionally, I'll even make up butterflies ahead of time, and then once the marquetry is done, I'll just set them on, on top, and move them around until they look like they're sort of pointing in the right direction. Yeah. Where did you learn your your marquetry and parquetry techniques? Were you self-taught? The marquetry I learned, I studied with Paul Schirsch and with Patrick Edwards, um, a week with each. Essentially, two different styles of marquetry. Mine follows more the Paul Schirsch style, very modernized version, a lot of floral work. The parquetry is basically self-taught. Um, mm-hmm. It's just practice cutting geometric shapes. Um, the hardest thing with the parquetry is just cutting the patterns to fit you know, a specific door size and determining how many diamonds it takes. And a lot of that work is done on the computer, much like the rest of my design work. Yeah. 
you work a lot with, uh, you know, you make your own plywood in your furniture. What brought you to that? I mean, instead of using solid wood, how did you come to the plywood way of working and then beyond plywood, making your own? What, what kind of brought you down that path? The veneer is where I started with the plywood. I needed something for a substrate for the veneer work. I don't like veneering on solid wood. I know it's been done in the past, but I don't like doing it except for maybe edging or small, narrow pieces. Uh, and I veneered for a long time on MDF, but honestly just got tired of lifting MDF. Three-quarter inch MDF sheets get just a bit too heavy for me. Yeah. So most of my work now is done with a lumber core three-quarter inch plywood that's skinned in quarter inch or eighth inch MDF. It, it allows me to vary the thickness of parts and add setbacks and reveals just in the thickness of the panel with the solid wood edging that goes around the pieces. And it, it's quick to make. It's made in the shop. You know, I mean, I'm starting with a three-quarter inch plywood and then skinning it with just off-the-shelf MDF. When it comes to your, um, you know, doing woodworking as a professional, you know, a lot of people, when I, you know, talk to folks on the road, they they dream about being a pro woodworker and you seem to have made it, you know, you're, you're, you've got steady supply of commissions and you're, you're always busy. What is your key to success or keys <laughs> to success? <laughs> well, it helps to be willing to work all the time uh, because in a one man shop, you do all the jobs. You do the marketing, the business side, the emails, the building. The building of the furniture is not 100% of the job. It's only maybe 60 or 70% of the job. The rest of the time is evening spent sending emails and doing things like that. You really have to be willing to put in an excessive amount of hours. You can't do it at 40 or 50 hours a week. It's just not possible to do all the work that needs to be done. For me, I've been willing to do that for a long time, and that's maybe why it's paid off for me, is the willingness to work very long hours and continue to put the work in and the effort in until it starts to pay off. Before when we were, we were chatting, when you were giving me the, the tour of your, your shop, you mentioned a couple of cases where you um, have outsourced certain jobs. Is that something that, that is very common for you to do? Certain things I outsource. I outsource any of my <clears throat> pardon me, CNC work and laser work. I've occasionally outsourced the building of furniture. That has gone good and bad in the past. Um, occasionally it can go very bad and occasionally it can go really well. Do you have a good story about it going bad? <laughs> uh, do we, we probably shouldn't mention names, but yes, I, I had a big job where I had somebody build a set of chairs for me that came out completely horrible. I mean, gaps in the joints, the chairs were basically falling apart when they arrived. Um, and we had to, I had a, a friend come in and I hired him to help me for a month. We took them apart, reshaped the parts, recut all the joints and reassembled these chairs, even replaced parts where the grain was going completely opposite of what would be considered acceptable. Um, and we just completely rebuild them from the ground up and turned them into the chairs they should have been that I actually paid for. <laughs> um, and the person that helped me with that, David Moore actually lives here locally and he's somebody I have had build things for me in the past and I allow him to you know, come in the shop and work sometimes, and occasionally he'll work in his own shop building pieces for me. Mm -hmm. Usually when I'm busy, and he does very nice work, and he's somebody whose quality I can trust, but I don't outsource the fabrication very much because I am kind of a stickler for quality. Mm -hmm. That's also maybe part of the reason that I've been able to do as well as I have. I really strive for the pieces to be as good as they can possibly be, and I'm willing to put in the extra time and effort to make them that way, and that usually ends up costing money. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when, um, your furniture, I don't, 
I don't like to classify things necessarily, but you're, is, there's no doubt that you're a modern furniture maker. Um, how does how you work as a successful businessman, you know, apply to your woodworking in terms of the pieces that you make? Well, I'm not using hide glue and I'm <laughs> not hand cutting dovetails. I'm making furniture for people that need furniture. I'm not making what I see as heirloom antiques that somebody's going to be taking apart and putting back together in 200 years. Maybe somebody will, but that's not my goal. I'm trying to make nice furniture for people to use now. And if the pieces last for a very long time, they're certainly built to last for a long time, but that's not necessarily the primary goal. And I'm not really interested in reversibility or being able to take things apart and put them back together. Um, the furniture I build, I build because I get paid for it. Mm -hmm. And I do this to make money. I have a family to support, and this is a job. And I work like it's a job, and I push the pieces out of the shop as soon as I can so I can get paid and basically move on to the next piece. Uh, you know, I don't want to spend endless hours, you know, fine-tuning a piece when I don't need to. That makes sense. Um, now, your, your shop is loaded with, with great tools. I see a beautiful panel saw, which I know a lot of our editors are, will be envious of if they ever get Probably. out here to see it. Yeah. And the um, best tool stuff. Yeah. Well, that was my, my question. I know you've, you've adopted and you're, you're a big fan of the, the Festival Domino, both, um, both, both models. And uh, just wondering how, how that has changed the way you work, or if it has. It has. It has made things faster. I think the quality of the work is essentially the same as when it was a router and some routing templates. It's just much, much faster now. And because this is a business where I get paid to do the work, the faster I can do the work, the more potential there is for me to make money and maybe one day not have to work so much. Yeah. It hasn't worked out that way yet, but I'm still trying to get there. But I use power tools because they're faster. I have a selection of hand tools that I use quite frequently, but if I can do it with a power tool, I very likely will. And the Festool tools for me are the best there is, and that's why I buy them. The Domino, there's nothing like it. It, it makes joinery that is fast and extremely accurate, and there isn't a tool that does that job as quickly as that one. You can do it with a router. You can do it with a mortising machine. It won't be as fast, and I don't think it'll be any stronger either. Do you still have your mortiser? I do. Yeah. It's underneath a bench somewhere collecting dust. <laughs> yep. I have that, and I had, I had the horizontal boring machine for a long time and then got rid of that. And I still have all the routers, but I don't use them for any sort of mortising anymore. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. I know um, we've done a few articles on, on the Festool, and, and we've gotten mixed responses. Some readers think it's blasphemy, but uh, you know, I think a lot of people who own them will just say, hey, it's, it's great, it's revolutionary, it does a lot of great things. My guess, and not in the intention to upset anybody, but my guess is most of the people that are criticizing the Domino have never used one and honestly just don't know what it could do for their woodworking. If you're not making joints to show... If it's just a joint to put a cabinet together, it, it doesn't matter in my mind if it's a routed mortise or if it's a dominoed mortise or if it's a hand-cut mortise. The mortise is the same. It's just as strong. And I'm guessing the domino is probably more accurate than the hand-cut one, and it's certainly many, many times faster. And the cabinet's going to stay together exactly the same way. Why cut by hand what you can do with a machine unless you're just doing it for fun? Mm -hmm. If it was a hobby and I was doing it in my shop at home, I would still have a domino. I maybe would hand cut stuff more often. Maybe I would do more hand cut dovetails, but I would certainly still have a domino because there's simply no reason to do grunt labor of 
chiseling out a mortise when you've got a machine that can do it yeah. better and faster. Yeah. You, you had mentioned something earlier um, about the fact that you don't, you don't use hide glue. And uh, I know you're a big proponent of, of something that, you know, some woodworkers don't like to use. So <laughs> talk about your glue choice a little bit. I am probably one of the few, and, and it was actually started by Paul Schirsch, um, who also is a big fan of Gorilla Glue and taught me how to use it. Um, I use Gorilla Glue for virtually all of my veneer work and the majority of my case assembly work as well. Edging, any sort of solid work, all the domino work is almost all done with Gorilla Glue. Um, it gets a bad rap because it takes time to learn how to use it. Um, and if you have too many bad experiences, you're never going to take the time to learn how to use it. And that has been a negative for Gorilla Glue for a long time, I think. But polyurethane glues have been used in Europe for years and years and years, far longer than we've been using them. Um, you know, it's basically heat-proof, it's moisture-proof, it's rigid, you can do bent laminations with it, it's easy to clean up, it sands off easily. As long as you don't, you know, spread it all over your bench and wait for the foam to build up, it's a wonderful glue to work with. But it just takes practice to do it right. Yeah, yeah. Now here's, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit less controversial, but um, <laughs> it's, it's funny, it's a question. I still have the first piece of, you know, quote, furniture that I ever made. It's a <laughs> three-piece book holder. Um, do you still have the first piece you ever made, or do you, do you remember no. the first thing you made? I don't even remember it. No, I, I don't really want to see any of those pieces either. <laughs> the work I do now is so much different than the work I was doing then. That it, you know, It's a totally different type of furniture. It's a totally different type of construction. Um, I'm sure I started off the same way most people did, building plywood furniture and things like that. But I don't even have pieces in my house of furniture that I've made because I simply can't afford to keep them. They're too valuable for me to sell. Mm -hmm. and I, I just can't have them in the house. Plus, oh. I, with the kids, it's not ideal to have... Expensive nice. furniture in the house. That's true. Um, that was going to be my next question as a follow-up. I mean, uh, do you still woodwork as a hobby? No. No. The only hobby woodwork I do is projects with the kids. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we were doing something this morning. We play around with leftover parquetry, veneer pieces, little diamonds and stuff, and we build patterns. But I don't do any woodworking as a hobby. I spend between 60 and 80 hours a week doing this. I have no interest in doing it for fun anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a job. I enjoy doing it. But there are easier ways to make money if you want to do it as a hobby. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to be a hobby woodworker, have a job that allows you to buy the nice tools that you want to buy and just do it as a hobby. There's, well, no, there's no reason to do it as a professional unless you just have no other choice or you love this work so much that you want to spend every day doing it. Yeah. Well, a lot of us dream of it, but yeah, the reality is I, I a know. whole different yeah, viewpoint. We all dream of a lot of things, but <laughs> the reality is definitely different. It requires work. It, it, it's not just the work aspect of it. It's the finding of the work. You know, This is like looking for a job every time you need a new commission. Yeah. Uh, every week, every day, I'm thinking, where is the next job coming from? How am I going to generate the next job? It's not just the woodworking. It's the marketing. It's the business. You know, should I post pictures on this website of these new pieces that I've done? How will I get people to see these new pieces? How am I going to get more work generated by this new interesting thing I've just done? It's not just the woodworking, unfortunately. If it was, it would be much, much easier. Yeah. Well, but great. We all have to find clients somewhere. <laughs> well, thank you, Craig, for spending a few uh, few minutes with me. Actually, a couple hours. And when all is said and done, I um, fascinated by your work. I love your craftsmanship and your designs, and I appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome anytime. All right, thanks. 
There you have it, Craig Thibodeau. Gentlemen? He loves it, by the way, when his name gets dropped on the show. He'd like his name to be, I know this, to be the name that gets, that gets mentioned the most on the show. Craig so, Thibodeau? Yeah, I'm talking about Craig Thibodeau. The Craig Thibodeau from San Diego. The, the Craig Thibodeau, the guy that we were just that they were just interviewing. Oh, that, that Craig guy. Thibodeau. Yeah, the okay. one, right. <laughs> anyway, so that's about five or six right there. For there you me, go. Craig. There you go. Well, back to what Craig was talking about. Um, I think knowing Craig's work, and you guys have seen his work, it really points to the fact that if you're going to make it as a pro, um, to his point, it, it's really not about skills. It's not, oh, I can cut a great dovetail. No one's going to pay you to cut dovetails. I think it, it really boils down to how good of a designer you are. And he's a phenomenal designer, not just in, in designing really beautiful furniture, but also designing it and engineering it in a way that it can be built efficiently. And that's a holy grail. Um, you got to be good. You got to be fast. And you got to be both of those things. And, and he's definitely that. Yeah. And I, I would say totally to what Mike said and... Uh, because, and I think he mentions this in the interview, because of his background in product engineering, he's really fearless about materials and methods because he's an engineer at heart. And so I've seen him do, you know, all sorts of work with mechanized parts and parts that are going into custom automobiles and jet aircraft, I think, and, um, you know, all the parts with collaborating with machine shops and integrating wood with with uh, metal on super custom parts there's really no uh job that involves veneer or wood in any way and any other array of materials and adhesives right. that he will that he'll really that he needs to turn away because he's got a broad knowledge of you know a broad background I, I should mention that if you want to see more from Craig there was an audio slideshow I did with him probably about three and a half years ago on uh, his inlay. So he uh, really loves using Mother of Pearl and abalone, and, and um, he uh, goes to a site called rescuepearl.com, huh. and he inlays things like the, the fret dots that are used on guitars. He uses those a lot in some of his work, and uh, it's neat stuff, and it was a kind of a cool audio slideshow. Cool. Uh, so check it out. We saw, I first saw his work, I've probably shot most of his articles, I think, because I love going to Southern California. But um, I first saw his work at that San Diego Fine Woodworkers Association uh, at the big Del Mar State Fair. Um, I think it's the biggest guild in the U.S. What time of year you usually travel to Southern California, Asa? Oh, actually, this one, you're probably thinking winter, but this one... No, no. Actually, this one is in June. So, But uh, I love going out there. And he won Best of Show a couple times, and it was sort of a no-brainer. Sure. The work was so impeccable, um, and that's when we first sort of noticed uh, Craig. Uh, all right. Well, let's go from Craig over to our next question. It comes from Dan, who wrote, I'm planning to build a large work table for my photography where I'll mount, trim, and mat fine art photographs. The table will stand inside my home and will be designed in the craftsman tradition. I have just enough quarter-sawn oak and flat-sawn mahogany stock for the top if I combine the two species of wood. Since they are so different in density and grain, I wonder if you could suggest a design for the top that would take into account wood movement and color. Or should I just save up for more of either type of wood? I think Dan just answered his own question. Yeah, he gets the award for answering his own question. And giving away that he knows the answer, he just can't. He, he needs just us wants to be needs on a gentle push line. toward the truth. Dan, Mike, give it to him. Dan, my friend, <laughs> if you're writing us with this question, 
I agree with Asa. You probably kind of know the answer. How the heck can I combine mahogany and oak in a way that is not going to be visually jarring and is going to bug me for the rest of my life every time I look at this tabletop? Um, actually, yesterday when we talked about this, my answer was going to be bite the bullet, get some more wood. You know, your, your hunch that it can't be done is probably pretty close to accurate, but I've changed my mind. I just, oh, I, I just want to say, I just thought he could add some uh, Okay, go uh, ahead. Good, uh, good. Okay. I, this was hard thought, so okay, I don't want you to like blow it by right, coming like right off the top of your head. Good. I got a good one, though. I was in my shop this morning, and I'm making a little um, white oak wall cabinet with a frame and panel door. And I'm trying to think, what kind of wood can I use in this panel as a little contrast to the oak? Bingo. The light bulb went off and I said, Dan, here's the solution. You want to build the top to mimic a frame and panel top. It's a solid glue up, but you want to put breadboard ends on the ends. So it's going to look like this. So you get a skinny strip of white oak along the ends. That's your breadboards. And then for this big multi-board glue up, Start with a couple skinny white oak boards on the outside so it looks like a frame. Yeah. I'd probably have one in the middle so it looks like a center style. And then you can glue up mahogany to fit these two rectangles within the frame. But you can glue that whole center thing just edge grain, just like a normal glue up. But what you want to do around the mahogany is put a slight chamfer, maybe a 16th inch chamfer along the top of the, each mahogany panel and on the edges of the long grain of the oak basically styles between the breadboard ends. Then you glue it up, and it's going to be a level surface, but you will have shadow right. lines where the mahogany meets the oak, and it's at least going to give you some structure. It's going to give you some logic to mixing two different woods into this top. However, by the time you go through this effort, I would say be open to the possibility that even then, oak and mahogany, it's not the best match. So you make it to this point and you've invested a lot more effort now and you may stay, man, I just don't like it. Be prepared to go get some more white oak and just rebuild the whole top after that point. So <laughs> Suck it up, Dan. I That's, think, it's, I think it's, it's worth a shot. Though. Well, even if, okay, so the fly in the ointment in your thing, Mike, is that maybe those two woods, because one of them is very closed grain and refined and the other one's very open grain and rustic. But that Aside, if you had two woods that were still different in color but were both refined or both rustic or something, that's a super cool thing you just described where you create a fake frame and panel. Um, I've never seen anyone else do that before, and I hope people could follow what Mike was talking about there. That was awesome. But I was just thinking, just just uh, lean in to the chaos and uh, it, so I'm picturing like, uh, so I'm picturing like just straight up red and white stripes, and then a big blue square, and just make an American flag, baby, go all the way, American flag. There's there's the door. Okay, I got. I'm sorry. And drive safe, everyone. Uh, I don't know if I'm glad or disappointed we didn't come up with the same solution. But uh. all right, let's move on to the next question. It comes from Taylor, and Taylor writes. I'm making a new hanging bathroom cabinet, and I can't decide which wood to use. I live in Selkirk, Manitoba, close to Winnipeg, and wood choices are fairly basic. I was looking into using cherry or white oak. What would you guys suggest? What finish should I go with? And the, the first thing that I thought of, Taylor, was, well, wait a minute. What's the, what's the, what's the scheme in your bathroom? What color are your tiles? <clears throat> do you have a, a vanity that this is going to match? What, you know, um, That's a really good point. People often do 
take a little piece of furniture, like a little hanging cabinet, and look at it in a vacuum, and they don't think about what else is going on in that room, which is really critical. But those woods are also really different. Um, like we just said in the last question, um, what was he talking about? Cherry and white oak. Mahogany. White Mahogany oak. and white oak. Um, but this time it's this this cherry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the same sort of rustic refined thing. So those are also very different looks to think about in that room. Like what works? Like what's their overall vibe? Oh, yeah, Mike was talking about the... The feel of the two different species, white oak versus cherry. Yeah, just um, even disregarding everything else in the room. Um, a lot of times we do think when we're thinking about a project, we think about woods, we, we kind of boil it down to color. Like, what color do I want this piece to be? But really, the, the wood selection, there's so much more to a wood species than its color. And you talked about oak being open grain, rustic. Cherry being closed grain, more refined. Um, it takes uh, molded profiles really well. It polishes nicely, and you have nice crisp edges between curves and flats. So really, when I think of like a white oak wall cabinet and I think of a cherry wall cabinet, they're, they're very distinctly different cabinets. So you know, each wood with its own personality lending itself to a really different way of working. And I think... You know, the question is here, it's like, well, do you want a cherry wall cabinet with everything working with that wooden tails, or do you want an oak wall cabinet? And if they did, right, and if they did uh, pick, um, like if they did go for color first, let's say, and they said, yeah, I really love the look of cherry, then it, they could then design a piece that looks good with cherry. Exactly. Right. right? So yeah. they could say cherry fits the room really well, and now let me design something like you said. Um, white oak, on the other hand, is often used in mission craftsmen, arts and crafts sort of work because in some Asian work also, and uh, it, it's sort of got a it's it can be refined, but it also has a rusticness to Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yep, yep. And I think with any wood, even beyond cherry and oak, each wood has its own. Sometimes we think of it as working properties, you know, how hard it is, how easy it cuts, how, how easily it tears out, the figure, the luster, the color, the grain, open grain, closed grain. But actually, it's sort of those working characteristics dovetail hand in hand with the visual characteristics of the wood. So the more different types of woods you work with, the more you sort of create a vocabulary of woods that you're familiar with. And then once you get to know the woods, how they look, how they work, um, then you start those wood choices start to inform your design choices as well. And it's really a holistic approach. The more you know about the medium, the more effectively you can design with intent is, in the medium. One of the coolest things I've found in this craft is after you've built an entire project out of, let's say, walnut, you know, black walnut, um, you have such a relationship with that wood that you'll anytime you ever see a piece of it, You'll identify it. I mean, even pick a wood that's like in the sort of mid-brown spectrum, like butternut. Yep. You'll never misidentify that again because butternut has this luminescent, shimmery quality to the grain. Right. It's um, it's like crisp in it. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's just there's nothing exactly like it. And also how it works, how it feels to work it with tools. You there's. You can't just look in a book at a bunch of color palettes. You have to like start launching it and building things with these woods. And then, I don't know, you develop more of a relationship, a feel. The thing Mike's talking about, like a deeper feel for all, 
everything that wood brings to the table. Yeah. Yeah. I just made a dresser. Um, actually, it was in the magazine last issue. It was a low dresser, and I was trying to think. I wanted a little bit of contrast to it. So the case, it's got legs, um, frame and panel sides. And so I went with a white oak for the top and the legs and the drawer stretchers and the frame. And I was looking for a contrasting wood. I was thinking ash might be kind of cool. It's open grain but lighter. And then I thought, well, what about butternut? And it was really – it was hard to get my head around it because tonally, the color-wise, butternut and white oak are almost exactly the same. So in my mind's eye, I'm trying to envision this piece in oak and butternut, and it's like I couldn't see it because, well, it all looks kind of brown. But – I knew the natures of those two woods would hopefully complement each other. And it was sort of a kind of a blind leap of faith that these woods were going to work. And, um, and, it, and it turns out they do. And for maybe for some people, maybe the contrast is too subtle. But for me, the difference that the heavy oak structure, which gives its, its strength and its stance, and then that sort of luminescent uh, butternut and that sort of uh, finer grain um, for the drawer fronts and panels, it works really, really well. And I think it works well, not so much because of the color differences, but because of the complementary natures of those two different woods. Totally. Keep in mind, if this is going into a bathroom, you better account for wood movement. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to move. Put a heavier finish, I'd say, you know, definitely a wiping varnish as opposed to a, like a shellac finish, which I normally do wall cabinets with. And expect those drawers and doors to open up to expand more than you expect them to. I have a couple cabinets in my bathrooms that I've sort of planed down on a couple occasions. <laughs> They're time capsules um, with what's been sealed inside. Uh, so I say we head into our second segment of the day if we count Craig as segment one. And I think this week it's uh, we're going to switch gears and do a tool bomb segment. Now, uh, for those uninitiated, uh, tool bombs are essentially they're one of two things. Either A, it's a tool you bought that was just the biggest chunk of junk and was a complete waste of money. Or two, it's something that is really esoteric, like this Stanley number 55 plane that I fell in love with. Uh, it's it's really esoteric, and you thought you were going to be using it all the time, but you, really it's just gathering dust on a back shelf. So uh, who are we starting with this week? I'm going to go – let's go alphabetically, first name. All right. That's you. Um, I've been uh, – where I'm moving house, and so I'm moving shop, and so that's a really good time to sort of take a hard look at what you own, obviously. And I found a nice tool bomb, and a lot of people are going to be like, oh, how dare you call – this tool, a tool bomb, but um, it's a, a jointer plane, which is basically, I think it's a number nine, maybe? Number seven. Number seven. Big old it's, guy. Yeah, big, yep. long guy. And I already, no, this was, yeah, I should have known because I was already really happy with my hand plane game. Um, I have four or five hand planes from some that do joinery and some that, you know, obviously a smoother. I have sort of a smoother I use for rougher work and one that's set up to do super fine. Only four or five. That's the, that's the number of planes that Mike carries in his glove box. <laughs> I know. I know. He has those on his body right now. But, um, uh, and, you know, block plane, whatever. But I always sort of, you know, you're around people like Mike and stuff and you want, you get a little bit of plane envy. So I, uh, someone, and here was another flag. Someone had one of these lying around, and they had never rehabbed it. And so I thought, oh, I want this big, long plane. I know that, you know, it'll be – I was trying to invent things that it might be good for, sure. um, it, truth be told. 
but I was sort of like, I'm going to rehab this thing the way he never did. So I, I made sure the bottom was flat, and it was a good garden variety, old Stanley, solid, corrugated bottom, cool. nice. Uh, and I put uh, an extra thick plain iron in there, like cryo, whatever, sort of super good plain iron in there. And then it was all tuned up, ready to go, took a few shavings, and that was the end of it. It sat and gathered cobwebs for the next eight years. And the truth is, I just don't need that tool. I have a jointer to do long edges. And after that, they're straight. I, I spend a lot of time tuning up my power tools to get those right. And so I just have never really needed that tool. And people can weigh in, I'm sure, with all the reasons I need to use it. But I just never took it down off the shelf. And I think it was a bit of a vanity uh, purchase. <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, if you buy it, the need shall arise. <laughs> right. And I just, I don't know, uh, you know, people can uh, feel free to weigh in, but I just couldn't find a real use for that. It's like, hold on a minute, I have a jointer. It's a power right. tool. Uh, so I'm going to go on a rant. Oh, I, by the way, yeah. I, I, I dished it off for 20 bucks to some sad sap on the staff that I won't name. No, I know who it is. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to go on a rant here. Um, so before the uh, invention of the random orbit sander, we had these little quarter sheet of sandpaper palm sanders that basically... I've got one, little porter right. kettle. And yeah. for some reason, they still sell these. And I don't know why, because it does absolutely nothing. And it comes with a little key, which you lose, and then you need a flat-bladed screwdriver to, to pry to open the right. spring-loaded bars to slide in that little it piece of sandpaper. nothing. It does yeah. nothing at all. It was the biggest waste. I still have one uh, when I was doing more home-building type work for a living. And I, it, it, it never did anything then when I bought it new for like 80 bucks, and it still doesn't do anything now. Yes. Why was it invented? Why do they still manufacture them? They're well, it, garbage. At one time, it was probably the best game in town, but technology marched past it, and it's still existing on the tree of life of you know tool evolution, and it's like a little withering appendage that needs to go away <laughs> oh. on the Darwinian tree, and it's still out there, and people are still buying them. The two big things that happened were, number one, random orbit was invented. Right. So these little tiny pigtail orbits that leave little pigtails on your work are bypassed. Right. So you have a random orbit, which we won't go into right now. Secondly, they punched holes in the bottom of these sanding disks, and you attach your vac hose to the top, and it sucks all the dust. These little, uh, uh, And that makes your sandpaper more efficient, keeps right. your lungs cleaner. Um, these things just make little piles of dust and then sit on top of them vibrating. I'm yes. going to see if I can get 20 bucks from that uh, undisclosed fine woodworking staffer for mine because it's still in the box. I've got you know, a little carrying there's case. There's always somebody you can sell something yeah, to. man. So it's the same little branch of the family tree. You've got your radial arm saw and uh -huh. your quarter sheet sander. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Ridiculous. History has marched by. Now, if you, I want to just say, if you have a radial arm saw, you can still use it as like a chop saw and get good use out of it. I don't know what the heck you're doing with that little quarter palm sander thing. Neither do I, Asa. <laughs> Neither do I. Michael? Well, this is a tool bomb, which I'm fairly confident every single woodworker either owns at this moment and you don't like it but you won't admit you don't like it, or you've owned it one time. And that is probably the first cross-cut sled you ever made was way too freaking big for 99% of the tasks you actually use it for. Can and we I, say freaking? 
And I was in that yeah, camp. Good. I think my first crosscut sled was probably 30 inches deep by at least 48 inches long. You know, with these big old massive fences, the thing probably weighed about 45, 50 pounds. And just a beast of a thing. And it took up a lot of space. You had to hoist it up on the saw. In fact, we have one of these behemoth crosscut sleds in our fine woodworking shop right now and i'm forced to like yank it out and use it on occasion and yeah and the trouble and i just wanted to point this out the trouble with those big sleds the trouble with the one in the shop is that you inevitably when you go to pick it up you pick it up by the back fence (laughs) which is usually adjustable so that you can square the sled so you end up every time you pick it up you bonk it out of square uh, which you also bonk me. your back out yeah. of square because oh, you're cantilevering yourself backward to try to get the front edge up onto oh, your yes. table yeah. saw. So then with my big guy there, I think in some project I decided, well, I'm going to make a really small crosscut sled that I'll use on occasion. Like that would be the exception to the rule. Little boutique guy. So I made a little thing. It was only about 12 inches deep, you know, front fence to back fence, maybe 24 inches wide. This I thought was like, it's, it's good for little tiny parts. Yeah. I'll use it on occasion for making a little box. I ended up using that thing like 90% of the time. And I realized, wow, because like most of the time when I'm cross-cutting, um, with the exception of maybe if I'm trimming the end of a frame and panel door, which really isn't much beyond 12, 13, 14 inches wide, you just don't need a really big cross-cut sled. And if I need it overly long, I'll just put a little support on my side feed table the same thickness as my crosscut sled bed is oh yeah so i have a little cleat half inch mdf cleat you know with a cleat front and back and just goes on my side feed table if i have to support something really long but my crosscut sled now it's probably my go-to sled i can't believe it's more than 18 20 inches deep if that and not much more than if it's 30 inches wide maybe 30 inches wide and it's like everything yeah. And the big guy has, has been long gone. Yeah. So if you're suffering with a big old massive crosscut sled, make a little tiny guy like right now. Yeah. And you'll probably never use that big guy again. That's it. All right. Well, next question comes from Matt who writes, I have a question regarding hollow chisel mortisers, specifically the benchtop versus floor standing models. I like the idea of the benchtop model for my small garage shop, but after watching Mike use one in the single board side table video series, it got me thinking how nice it would be to have the XY table. Until recently, I have Morris using a drill press attachment, which although effective, can be tedious and frustrating. I'm committed to moving to a dedicated mortiser. Until I saw the video, I was pretty set on the benchtop model. What are your thoughts? I make about two to six pieces a year, requiring about 10 mortises each on average. Thank you for the mathematics there, Matt. Uh, I, so I think he's. I think he's actually right about um, about yeah. not liking the drill press attachment. Oh my god, that's <laughs> the first thing that jumps out. Is like he's jumping straight. Okay, so there's three levels of hollow chisel mortise. That's Matt's tool bomb. Yes, the and and everyone's been tempted to buy the way inexpensive thing that attaches to your drill press, right. and it's it purports to be able to do hollow chisel mortising, but the setup is so. Uh, tedious and the use is so tedious that um, and you have to decommission your drill press temporarily while you put this thing on there right. um, it's just not a, a great tool it's going to end up in our tool bomb category if any one of us buys it yeah. so and people 
that's so put that aside. Yeah, best way to cut a mortise with a drill press, drill it out, and yep. then chop it square with a chisel. So that you could do right now. He could yep. do that right now with probably the tools he has. Yeah, and it'd not, be, a, not a bad way to go. Yep, and he'd be better off than what he's doing. But he's talking about jumping all the way up to a eight or the hundred or a thousand dollar floor standing uh, model with an XY cranked yes. table. Yes. Um, there is another intermediate step above that, which is a perfectly great step, which yeah. is uh, Mike's end. Yeah. But I think I've seen some good ones. A while back, we reviewed a Powermatic benchtop. I'm talking about benchtop models. There's a, there are a couple out there that uh, make it a little bit more convenient to use. I believe the Powermatic benchtop had little rollers that pressed the stock up against the fence so you could move it side to side e- more easily. Um, and so that's an option. You know, l- seriously look into a benchtop model. But then again, he's right. If you want to go all the way, you can go all the way to the the one that Mike was using. Was that in the fine woodworking shop, Mike? No. Uh, that was a Powermatic. I'm not even sure the number. Um, I don't know if they still make it or if they may make a tilting head version of it. the one in his shop. Mine doesn't have a tilting head. It's a floor standard. It's a floor standing with the XY table. And it's really the table that moves is the operative thing that makes it better than a bench top. Bench tops, you can get, you know, some with plenty of power. It's the hold down. The problem is in order to drill a long mortise, you have to drill a series of square holes. And if your table doesn't move, it means you're repositioning the workpiece for every single little square hole right. that you cut. And I had I went I had a uh, bench top uh, mortiser and the problem was if I adjusted the hole down really really tight so it wouldn't lift up and rack I had to loosen it every time I moved that workpiece over so I'm always looking for that happy medium between okay it's holding it down enough to where it's not going to lift up when I pull that chisel out of the stock mm-hmm. um, but it's going to be able to slide so you try to find that and what happened is. If the hold down ever fails at all and the workpiece lifts up, it will lever and it will break the bit in the Mm -hmm. middle of the hollow chisel. And I broke probably two or three bits with my benchtop mortiser. And I just thought, well, maybe that's just the nature of the game and you go through these things. But when I went to the the mortiser, floor standing mortiser with the XY table that has a big heavy-duty clamp, you're locking this workpiece to the bed as it moves, really solid, really secure. I've never broken a, a bit since then. So, yeah. and but it's I, an expensive machine. It's yeah. Brand so new. I really think it's it's a price versus convenience. And I think stating the number of projects you do and the number of mortises you cut in each project, that's a really good indicator about what mortiser you might want to get away with. Because the bench top is perfectly fine. You're going to get it at a fraction, probably a third of the price. You know, a good bench top is probably going to be probably four to six hundred bucks. I bet. Yeah. Um, I know you can get them as low as one hundred ninety nine bucks. Mm. You don't want to go there. Um, and then, but I, there seems to be less and less floor standing mortisers available these days. And they used to start eight to twelve hundred. I'm not sure you can get a brand new one for much less than a thousand. Bucks. I think you're probably right. I think it's probably up so, in the mid thousand. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. So you have options. Yeah. But the good old fashioned drill and chop is not bad. Nope. Almost anything is better than what he's doing now. All right, Matt. There you go. Uh, Next question comes from Will. And Will writes, Several years ago, during my first visit to Woodcraft, I bought a Clifton 410 shoulder rebate plane. How British of you. I was definitely thinking of 10 inch shoulders, but mostly it looked cool, and I wasn't about to leave empty-handed. 
Uh, I've mostly used it on tenons since then, but I've always been unsure about sharpening the side bevels and the fact that the blade is wider than the body. I've only worried about the back and the front bevel, thinking that the bevels and the sides were good enough from the attention to the back. Is that correct? Is the blade meant to project beyond the sides of the body? Or do you move it flush with whichever side is contacting the workpiece? Any advice on how to get the most out of it would be greatly appreciated. So uh, let's start this, these answers uh, with sharpening these side bevels, um, which you are not doing. Just like a, a chisel or plain iron, you flatten the back, polish the bevel, remove the burr from the back, you're good to go. Don't worry about anything that's happening on the sides of that uh, plane iron. And then in terms of the, of the width of the iron in relation to the body of the plane, ideally you want it a couple thousands wider, but not so much that you got a big old sixteenth of an inch of a blade sticking out the side. In order for a shoulder plane to work properly, that blade has to be cutting right into the corner. That's, that's kind of why you don't want to sharpen the side, because you want it to ride whatever shoulder's there without cutting into it. Well, I mean, it's like theoretically you want the corner of the blade lined up with the side of the plane. In reality, it's you need it to stick out a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. So if it's if it's precisely sized slightly wider than the body, you can in essence center it and work on either side of the plane. Um, if it's a little bit too wide or if it's a little bit too narrow, just fudge it to the side you're working with. And chances are um, a lot of times when you're doing shoulder work, you are – most of the time having one side of the plane in, in contact with the stock. So I find that, you know, probably 80% of the time I've, I've got one, one side of the plane there. And on my blade, it's pretty well sized. If anything, it's slightly wider than I would want. And a lot of times I can, I can just sort of shove that blade off to the other side to change that projection just a little bit. Yeah. And I, I was, I, de I derailed Mike a little bit there, but I was just trying to return to the earlier point that one of the reasons you don't want to like hone the sides of it and create a super sharp edge at the side is let's say you're to let's say you're trimming the cheek of a of a uh, tenon young child or you're trimming no not the cheek of a young child that was really weird Ed. um I'm shaving oh okay I didn't right. mean anything sadistic <laughs> or uh yeah, okay fine I'm still not going there <laughs> yeah, okay. so let's say you're uh, <laughs> let's say you're you're trimming you use these things for trimming shoulders and cheeks of tenants let's say, for example yep. common task um the side of the plane is riding a reference surface that you're probably pretty happy with so that's like let's say you're trimming the cheek and the side of the plane's riding the shoulder yeah you don't want that side of the blade that edge, that you know, the edge of the uh, of the front edge, the side of the front edge, to be cutting into that shoulder. You just want it to ride it like a reference surface, and uh, you know what I mean. So I'm back to his. This is the reason why you're not sort of polishing and honing the sides of the blade because you'd create. I think you'd create sort of a sharp front edge it's on funny. that thing, and you know. And I and I would think if nothing else, it would sort of grab and want to dig in a little bit. I should have checked on mine, but I never have ever really recalled the entire blade sticking out of the side. It's always the tip. So I'm wondering if, Oh, I don't know if the, if the size of the blade are slightly tapered oh, if or they not. taper backward. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't specifically recall seeing it that way. Maybe it's because the cutter itself is so short, but, yep. um, yeah. And I agree with Mike that I do the exact same thing. I fudge the blade over or back. So just, 
I can barely, my fingertips can just barely feel it sticking out the side just a tiny right. bit. So I know that it's cutting all the way into the corner. Yep. All right. Uh, listen, guys, we get lots of comments uh, on our iTunes page and through email. And every week we like to read a few of those comments. So uh, here we go with this week from Will Doherty. Love the podcast, audio and video, although Mike kind of looks like he'd be more comfortable with the audio only. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, from Taylor, love the show. I listen at work on headphones and get strange looks for bursting out laughing. However, the strange looks don't go away once I explain what I'm listening to, but I guess it comes with the Wood Geek territory. Matthew Calicott wrote, love the show, guys. I look forward to listening to new episodes on my long drive into work in the morning. And with that comment from Matthew, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. Thanks again to our sponsor this week, Minwax. We'll be back again in two weeks on July 17th, 2015 for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes. And by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it in your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody, and happy 4th. Only four or five. That's the, that's the number of planes that Mike carries in his glove box. <laughs> I know. I know. He has those on his body right now. But, um... <laughs> <laughs>